it's more than just a job. It is service. It is a calling. It is a necessity to support our service members who are serving our country around the world. So it's a very satisfying career to go out there and provide our service members that much needed health care. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. We are privileged to speak with Dr. Tyson Becker. He is a Colonel in the Army Medical Corps and currently serves as a General Surgery Consultant to the Army Surgeon General and is a Trauma Critical Care Surgeon at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. Colonel Becker has deployed six times in his career with small surgical teams. He recently completed a high-volume combat deployment with a split component of a forward surgical team. In a six-month period, the team cared for nearly 500 trauma patients and operated on over 130 of them. Additionally, Dr. Becker created a groundbreaking program in San Antonio to train small surgical teams and is involved in multiple trauma research grants. He completed his general surgery training at Walter Reed and his surgical critical care and acute care surgery fellowship at BAMSI. Welcome to War Docs. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast tonight. Um, we welcome Dr. Tyson Becker. Welcome to the show. Honored to be here. So, Dr. Becker, tell us what led you to military medicine. Well, I'm from Missouri, and there's a, a six-year program that combines undergraduate school and medical school together. And so, being from Missouri, that's the, the program that I went to. And when I was in medical school, one of my electives was in Reserve Officer Training Corps. And so, I started to take some ROTC classes and really liked the discipline, the leadership, the service of the Army. And so that just, for me, it was a natural attraction to go into the Army at that point. Did you always want to go into medicine or just were thinking about the Army in general? So actually, no. Um, I was always interested in entrepreneurship and being my own boss. And so the challenge was uh, I got accepted to the Wharton School of Business at University of Pennsylvania. So it was either go to Penn and uh, be an entrepreneur or potentially you know, become a, a doctor. And I guess surgery, being the captain of the ship, was an attraction to me in medicine that I thought, well, I could I could become a surgeon and then that might be my own entry into being my own boss. You know, those are the, the two choices I had. And so being from Missouri and and enjoying sciences and such chose to go to, to medical school. So we know that you're a trauma surgeon. Tell us what led you to choose trauma surgery as your now occupation. So I went into general surgery first because I liked the immediate satisfaction of taking a problem and fixing it. And maybe that had to do with kind of my, my desire again, also to be captain of the ship and, and my own boss. I just felt like in surgery, I could, I could have that immediate satisfaction. And so I was first a general surgeon and then I deployed as a general surgeon. And what attracted me to trauma was taking care of severely injured service members in a deployed environment with without the extra expertise of trauma. I just felt like, you know, these people are putting their lives on the line and, tra you know, deployed trauma is about the worst trauma it can be. You're doing trauma in an austere environment with limited resources. And they have me as a general surgeon. These service members deserve experienced trauma surgeons taking care of them. So that was my attraction that I like the Army. I like serving the service members. I like doing surgery 
deployed, but to serve them better and to do my job better, I needed to be a better trauma surgeon because I felt like that's what the Army needed at the time, you know, when we're in OIF and OEF and uh, deploying regularly active engagements, you know, in the Middle East, like that's what that's what the Army needed. So that was my motivation to go and get further training in trauma critical care. So I think most people would identify trauma surgery as being a very valuable asset, but yeah, I would suspect that it's a limited asset. So where on the battlefield is a trauma surgeon needed and best utilized? I would say throughout the entire theater, I, I do believe, I mean, at the at the most austere forward environment, you know, I'm my deployments have all been to forward surgical teams. So roll two, really as close as you can get outside of a small aid station to the trauma in the chain of evacuation. We all know that hemorrhage is the leading cause of uh, potentially survival injury. So you need a trauma surgeon, I think, as close as you can get to the traumatic event as possible. So definitely roll two at the austere locations. And then throughout the chain, though, because then at the roll three, they're also getting point of injury patients and they're getting all the transfers in from outside, you know, roll twos and austere locations. So honestly, I feel like it's throughout the chain of, of evacuation. And then you have all the way back to launch stool and then back to the, you know, the roll, the roll fives back in CONUS, um, Walter Reed, Brook Army Medical Center. Throughout the entire chain, I think having a, an expert in trauma care is really critical so how is a trauma surgeon in the military different from a trauma surgeon in civilian practice? Well, you know, I do practice in um, some civilian trauma centers as well here, you know, University Hospital and some other locations. And I can tell you that I feel like in the in some of the civilian hospitals I'm at, doing trauma care feels more like a job, to be honest. And, you know, there's other people that can fill in in that job. I, I feel like military trauma uh, is more of a calling and a service, and it, or it does require a different level of dedication and service to the to the patients that you're taking care of. It's kind of a bigger picture that you're you're serving. I, I went into the military because I feel that the the principles that our country is founded on deserve people to fight for it. And so I think that the service members who are out on the front line, putting their lives on the line for the benefits that we all have in this country deserve the best care possible. And so that's more than just a shift job or whatever in a civilian hospital. I think it's a, a greater calling. One of the things that's really interesting to me on your, your CV is this thing called the Strategic Trauma Readiness Center. And you developed it to really prepare small surgical teams to get ready for the battlefield. Can you tell us a little bit what led you to that and, and what it does? Yeah, so my recent, my last deployment to the Middle East was a high volume uh, trauma deployment. We were finishing up the last 1% of the ISIS caliphate. And so it was a true combat deployment with close to 500 traumas that we had and over 130 surgical cases. And so, you know, it was just everything from head to toe we operated on and it was 24 seven for six months. After I got back, I shared that experience with people and it was a pretty common answer when people told me that, you know, wow, they, they don't think that they'd be ready for deployment like that. And the, that 
that concerned me because you have to be ready for a deployment like that. You just never know when it's going to happen. And so for me, I recognized that there was a significant need to prepare our surgical teams to be prepared for high volume trauma. I think the fact that in general, most surgical teams in recent history have had low volume of trauma. We don't want to get complacent with that and just assume that there's no trauma. And even if there is limited trauma, you know, the two or three Americans that may come to you during your whole deployment, for them, that moment matters. You know, you don't want to take that moment and say, wow, we, we learned a, a lot, you know, from these three traumas that we can do better next time. There may not be a better next time for your team. There's certainly not another next time for these three Americans that were injured. So when I got back, I realized that we had a lot of work to do to prepare surgical teams, including the surgeons, to be ready for trauma deployed. And so that really motivated me. And then General Harder, who was the commanding general at, at Brook, and Colonel Osborne, Deputy Commander Surgical Services, the three of us looked at all the opportunities that we had in San Antonio with DOD's only level one trauma center, with the range we have at Camp Bolas, and then the labs that we have there for different tissue labs. We just realized we had so much here to prepare surgical teams that we were the ideal location to do that. So set up a, a program from uh, the ground up. And my desire in this program was to cover everything that every single individual on a small surgical team would need to know in an environment like I was at in Syria. And so all those little tips and tricks that you wish you knew deployed, but nobody really covered. Um, they just assumed that they would figure it out later or something. All those little tiny details, walking blood bank details, cross-training, complex trauma, all these different things that are required for people to know that I put that into this training program. And I didn't want to leave anybody out. It's not surgeon-centric. It takes an entire team, especially when you have a 10-person team. Every single individual on that team has to be competent in their individual skills skills before the team can be competent as a team. So the focus is on individual competency and then also taking it together as a team. And so that's kind of the, the program that we designed. So how do we know, coming from someone who's deployed six times these forward surgical teams, how do we know if a surgeon is ready to handle the types of surgeries and critical care that's needed on the battlefield? I do believe that putting people through a program like what we have to where they're put into a trauma center to do trauma as a team, but then also they need a live fire field training exercise like what, what we have to where can't recreate an austere environment, a level one trauma center, no matter where that trauma center is, because it's got all the whistles and bells that we do not have in a just deployed austere environment. So you have to recreate those challenges that you're going to have in an austere environment. I think bringing the, the, the team together, the entire team together, put them in that environment and put them through those kind of experiences that, that I had in, in, uh, in a high op tempo combat environment, putting them through that and then having enough full observing them in order to give proper evaluation and feedback. I think that's the best way to do it. I think the problem with some of the metrics is that all that provides you is an objective number. It doesn't really put it into context of how that task was accomplished. Was it accomplished with limited resources? Was it accomplished in a trauma center? Was it accomplished in elective case? I think putting it into a live fire scenario is what's required. And so you can't just do with a checklist. It is going to require performing those skills and being observed doing it. Tell us about your first assignment after your general surgery training, and did you feel prepared? 
it's always, you know, once you come out and it, as we say, it's not your credit card, right? When you come out and, and uh, you don't have an attending who's paying the bill for your cases, um, it's all on you. That's always a little intimidating at first. You realize you're responsible for the patient's outcomes now. And so it is a little intimidating at first, but I think my training prepared me well. I was a resident at, at the old Walter Reed, 2001, 2007. So I think I think I was well prepared for it. And then as far as deployment, honestly, I, I thought I was well prepared for it. Uh, you know, at, doing trauma at Baltimore Shock Trauma. And I was one of those persons that I now as consultant complain about who feel that they don't need to do the pre-deployment training because they're ready. They, they already did that in residency or whatever. I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. And I think that Colonel Jennifer Gurney has done a survey on that. Those that go into their first deployment are the most confident in their skills. And then after that first deployment, for their second and third, they're actually less confident than they were in their first deployment because now they know what they don't know uh, after having been deployed. So, and then that increases with more experience. But I definitely think that I was prepared and I had good teammates and we were a full FST at that time. So I had partners to work with. It was intimidating, but I, I felt prepared. Is there one thing that you wish that you know now that you wish you knew on that first deployment that you had? That first deployment, I felt I was very centric on myself and I very much was like everything was my responsibility. And I think after especially my last deployment, because that was a 20 person team, I, I took for granted my teammates, to be honest, and things just happened. I think on my last deployment, high volume, op tempo deployment with only 10 members, I think that taught me more how much you rely on your teammates. And so I think I, I wish I had not been so self-centered, perhaps, and self-centered. And, and thought of the whole team itself. Uh, everything didn't necessarily rest on me. You know, it does take the entire team. So tell us about your most memorable or some of your most memorable cases on deployment. Okay. So, um, you know, there have been quite a few, but uh, one of them that I remember because I, I teach it uh, when I do the trauma training that we do here with, with Stark is a, a patient that I had with my first deployment um, since we were... At 7,500 feet, there was always the difficulty sometimes in getting patients out because of weather. And so we had to be prepared for anything that might come in. And so one of the things that I was concerned about and practiced was in case I had to do a craniectomy. And so we did have one host nation patient from an IED blast came in and took him to the operating room for exploratory laparotomy. And then in the recovery area, had a blown pupil. And so took him back to the operating room for decompressive craniectomy. And this was without power drills or anything like that at the roll two. And so had to drill multiple burr holes and then use a, a giggly saw to, to get the bone flap off. Unfortunately, he, he succumbed to his injury, but the benefit for it was in the, the lesson I teach the teams then is that even though nobody wants to have to do a case like that as a a general surgeon, we're the only trauma providers for our service members in austere areas. And so you have to be prepared for anything. And so by doing that case, I felt that our team was prepared and would be able to do that if a, if a U.S. casualty had come in with an injury that, you know, we couldn't evacuate out and we had to do decompressive craniectomy on. Tell us about another story that you have that's memorable clinical case on one of your deployments. Yeah, like I said, there uh, there are so many. This uh, this last deployment, 
deployment with, you know, 500 traumas, everything was pretty memorable. But honestly, some of the memorable ones are those that were disappointing cases, ones that I look back on later and think, what could I have done differently? But the resources that you have in the austere environment, unfortunately, you know, you're, you're limited. But one of them that was challenging this last deployment was a really bad gunshot wound right uh, sub-xiphoid, which is a concerning area, and then with uh, another wound in his right flank. And so concerned for some high-priced real estate in that area. So took him to the operating room, explored his abdomen, and had some bleeding up around his liver. Did, liver didn't look too bad. Packed him. He's 20 units into it at this point. And then the packs are still bleeding through. So know that this patient's not going to survive transport, you know, with packs that are bleeding through from around the liver. Had to increase exposure. Took a look and his ent entire posterior part of his liver was just destroyed. And there's a re retrohepatic cable injury. And it's hard because, you know, this is 26 units in now at this point. He still has a, a heartbeat. But just knowing this was one of the host nation fighters that we were supporting, but just knowing that how much blood, this could take 100 units of blood back at BAMPS even, and then the outcome's still not predictable. But in that environment, you have to you have to look at your resources. You have to look at how much blood you have. You have to look at the ongoing op tempo and, and potential casualties that you still have to treat. And you have to conserve resources. And so making that decision that this is probably devastating injury that you don't have the resources to address, that that to me is the most memorable because it's the hardest thing surgeon taking care of trauma patients to, to have to you know, make that call that you have to conserve resources. And this is unfortunately probably non-survival. So I've got lots of great outcomes and things that felt good and lots of patients that we sent out alive. And that feels good, but that's just what we do. It's those ones that didn't make it out that I think are the most memorable because you try to learn from, you want to think, what could we do differently? Well, let's turn to a positive. What would you consider your best save in your entire military career, either on deployment or in the United States, wherever? What is your best save? You take that for granted because we have such a great system, both, I think, with the medevac system deployed, as well as here in the States, that you have some pretty significant injuries. And with all the resource that we have, it's almost just become commonplace. Um, to save patients that historically there'd be no way to save. So it's almost uh, expected. So again, it's those have just become almost like, like I said, what's expected of, of me and our team. So they don't always stick around as much as those ones, like I just mentioned, that you want to learn from so that you improve. But honestly, sometimes it's just the simplest things that are the most satisfying. You have somebody who has a, a terrible uh, facial injury or somebody tried to get an airway on them, can't get an airway and, and their epiglottis is so swollen that nobody can intubate this patient, but you're the surgeon, you're there at the bedside. And as they're getting hypoxic and bradycardic, you have a knife, you open their neck and put a, a crike in and suddenly they're uh, oxygenating well, they're totally stable. And then the next day, you're actually able to pull that crike out as swelling goes down. So I think those are satisfying because you know 100% that that little action saved the person's life. What is your most memorable non-clinical story that happened to you as a doctor that you did not expect? I think what's interesting is throughout the world where you go, there is a lot of international camaraderie, even if you don't speak the same language from 
working with in Afghanistan with Italians that we did not speak the same language, but gather over over food and just through gestures and sharing food together just has a, a nice feeling of camaraderie in difficult areas. And same with in, in Syria, I was surprised after the SDF were told that we're going to be leaving the country, they would have us over and have a, a grand meal together and we can't speak the same language, but you still had a, a feeling of mutual respect and appreciation. And so I think it's just working with, with different cultures and sharing the same kind of challenges that really cross the, the language barrier. What would you tell a chief resident in general surgery or other physicians something they should know or do to prepare for their first deployment uh, and any tips you might give them? Yeah, I think, again, I think the big thing is you don't know as much as you think you know. And all the training that we have stateside in our civilian or military uh, centers that we train in that have every imaginable whistle and bell to take care of patients, like you can't expect that deployed. So while you might feel ready because of your training, it's totally different deployed when you have limited resources, limited um, personnel support, limited blood products, and you have potentially multiple uh, trauma patients at once. And so I would say don't take pre-deployment training for granted like I did my first deployment. Definitely take advantage of any kind of pre-deployment training you can. In your career, have you participated in any interesting training opportunities that stood out or humanitarian missions? Yeah, I think, Dr. Sordal, you, you came to Ghana when I was there, and that was one of that was an interesting experience. I'm a big fan of humanitarian missions for surgeons. I think the vast majority of the world doesn't have the resources that we have in the developed countries with our surgical capabilities that we have with robots and et cetera. So vast majority of the world is still doing surgery with limited resources. I've been to Honduras, total of six months. I've, I've been to Africa, uh, to Ghana. And I think seeing how the majority of the world is doing surgical procedures is important. I think it's satisfying because it's also, again, it, it's more simple. It's very much brings you back to good technique and basics because there are limited capabilities there. And so Ghana was great. Also, Honduras was really good from a humanitarian perspective. And it sparked my interest in getting a master's of public health uh, and then looking at one of the other shortcomings around the world, which is EMS and pre-hospital care, because a lot of times patients don't ever get to the hospital in, in many areas around the country just because there is no EMS system that, that can get patients to a hospital like we have here, where in seconds to minutes, you can have what would be non-survival injury in many countries just because they don't have that capability. Uh, we get to our, our hospitals now much quicker. What advice would you give to a 20-year-old friend or family member who is interested in military medicine and your advice about your experience in the military? So I definitely recommend the military because, again, as, as I described earlier, to me, it's more than just a job. It is service. It is a calling. It is a necessity to support our service members who are serving our country around the world. So it's a very satisfying career to go out there and provide our service members that much needed health care. So I think the military has a personal satisfaction from the job that we do, but there are a lot of professional opportunities as well. And so as a consultant, I'm working myself on trying to increase opportunities for surgeons in collaboration with military-civilian partnerships 
And so I think that there are a lot of opportunities on the horizon to be very busy clinically. There's also research opportunities. We're on the cutting edge of a lot of trauma research. And so I've got a handful of trauma protocols ongoing right now. And a lot of the breakthroughs that we've had in medicine and trauma have come from military researchers. So I think that there's a lot of professional and personal opportunities and satisfaction serving in the military. Is there anything about military medicine that keeps you up at night that you worry about and wish you could fix? Yes, there's the trauma readiness that is a concern of mine. And I think it's a blessing that past 10 years that we've had fewer U.S. casualties in the deployed environment. But I think with that, we have to be careful because it does create complacency. The fact that we've had fewer deaths doesn't necessarily mean it's because, you know, because we're so good at trauma care, although I, I think we are. I think that it's also just because of the fact that there's not as many ongoing operations right now in deployed environment with our troops getting injured. And so we still have to be ready, though, because we don't know what's coming on the horizon. And like I said, even two or three service members that get injured in a six-month deployment is still two or three you know, U.S. service members that get injured and are relying on us to be ready. And so the, the fact that we're not seeing such high op tempos regularly right now, I am concerned that, that our, our surgeons and our teams are, are not prepared for the volume that we saw in the beginning of OIF and OEF. And so I think we have a lot of work to do on that. Over the next 10 to 20 years, what do you think are the changes that are going to occur in military medicine to improve care on the battlefield? I'm not a real tech-savvy person working on research in Google goggles or whatever. And I honestly, I'm sure that there are a lot of technologically advanced ideas out there that probably being worked on right now that, that are going to improve patient care on the battlefield. But I'll tell you a, a couple things from my standpoint that I think are important that we need to work on. And one is, again, it, it's simulation. It's trauma readiness. That's very much something that as I see teams come through and train, everybody needs trauma readiness, no matter how ready they feel that they are. And, and the fact that, you know, we are seeing less trauma now, and the fact that even in trauma centers, a lot of trauma is, is blunt trauma, not like the 97, 98% penetrating trauma I had in Syria. So in order to get that experience, we're going to have to do simulation. And so what kind of simulation? Right now, simulation is kind of, in my opinion, it's not very high fidelity. It's, it is lacking in in realism. And so I think one of the things that we can work on is improving trauma readiness simulation training, for one. I do think that also how do teams train, but I think we need to add a little more science behind it, having experts in education and training and team dynamics and behavior coming in and evaluating how a team is functioning and providing that kind of higher level of team dynamics training is important. And then from a technological standpoint, I do think telemedicine is going to be important because especially if we're talking about large-scale combat operations and, and limited evacuation and prolonged field care, and you're not going to have all these various experts spread throughout the battlefield, you're going to have to rely on telemedicine and, and reach them back to experts that are going to be far enough behind the lines to be away from the, the front battlefield, but they can provide that higher level of expertise to the frontline folks and maybe with improved ability to do some kind of telemedicine or, or remote surgical assistance, you know, I think that that's going to be key. What is one story from your military career that you would want your great-grandchildren or great-great 
grandchildren to hear? I think this last deployment for me uh, to Syria probably, I imagine, will be the pinnacle deployment of my career, once-in-a-lifetime kind of deployment. And, and honestly, it was bringing together multiple cultures and different individuals to fight against a common enemy. Everybody could agree was truly evil. So that's probably about back to World War II, kind of a similar uniting force against evil that everybody could kind of come together and agree on. So for me, I I think that was a satisfying deployment in that it was a personally and, and professionally felt that, you know, we were truly serving the common good. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Tyson Becker, for joining us on this episode of War Docs. Uh, We appreciate your insights. We appreciate your stories. And just thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.